0: Episode 60, with designer and author, Kevin G. Bethune. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with designer and author Kevin G. Bethune. Kevin is a designer who, through a multifaceted lens, examines current design practices and encourages us to rethink and reimagine not only how we approach design, but who's also at the table when those decisions are made. A nuclear engineer turned designer, Kevin's interdisciplinary journey has taken him from the Boston Consulting Group to designing sneakers for Nike with footwear designers like Dwayne Edwards and Jason Maiden. Shout out to episode 58. If he sounds familiar, you may also recognize Kevin from his time on the TEDx stage, where he presented a talk on the four superpowers of design. Born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, it was his parents' exposure to museums and art galleries that gave him permission to let his imagination run wild, influencing his interest in drawing as a hobby. Growing up in the heart of the automotive industry, Kevin knew he'd have to figure out a way to lean into his creative curiosities eventually. His education journey began with a degree in mechanical engineering from Notre Dame University, but after leading teams repairing nuclear power reactors, he felt he'd do better understanding business firsthand. And that he did. This shift landed him at Carnegie Mellon's Tepper School of Business, after which he created the digital division of Boston Consulting Group, a design incubator that launched several successful businesses. But that early creative drive still burned within. And although he later landed his dream job at Nike on the business side, he longed to leap to the creative side working early mornings and late nights with the godfather of sneaker design, the aforementioned Dwayne Edwards, Kevin eventually got his wish, and the rest, as they say, is history. Currently, Kevin works as the founder and chief creative officer of his think tank, Dream, Design, and Life, he is also the best-selling author of his new book, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation, which we will include in the show notes so you can get your hands on a copy. In today's episode, Kevin shares with us his lifelong pursuit of creative curiosity. He reminds us that what may seem like a career pivot from the outside is really an internal expansion as each new acquired skill makes you uniquely qualified for the problems you aim to solve. It encourages us to tap into the path of experimentation and how pursuing stretch assignments can test the limits of our creativity, provide evidence that you're on your path, and ultimately get you closer to where you want to be. Let us know your thoughts about today's episode on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And you can also watch this full episode and others by visiting and subscribing to our new YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. You can also find this and more content over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the thought-provoking Kevin G. Bethune. So, Mr. Kevin G. Bethune, <laughs> uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. It is such a pleasure to sit here in conversation with you today.
1: Oh, thank you for the honor. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so so to start, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to?
1: I would have to say my family, my Wife, Safonet, and my son,
0: 13-year-old son, Ezra. Ah, Safonet and Ezra. Welcome, welcome <laughs> into the conversation. <laughs> so, so to begin, who is Kevin Bethune?
1: Uh, I guess I, I, I can say I am an imperfect human being that very much thrives on creative curiosity. And through the travels of life, I have manifested a path that allows me to be a designer, an entrepreneur, and now an author, which I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, for those of you listening, Kevin has a wonderful new book called Reimagining Design, um, Unlocking Strategic Information. And also, thank you for that beautiful segue. Uh, So let's talk about this book. Why a book and like, why now? Hmm.
1: Uh, Honestly, um, the notion of a book wasn't on my career bingo card. I never viewed myself as a writer. (laughs) I I very much was um, a maker through my career, but I would say in, in recent chapters of career, I've been in situations where I've had to lean into sort of the fuzzy boundaries between disciplines and, and really help stand up, design and innovation capabilities, especially in spaces that hadn't fully appreciated the power of creative problem solving and that type of problem solving at parity with other ways to problem solve in business, with technology and these kind of things. And so there there was um, sort of on the radar, like the idea of codifying the learnings. And and in in a recent chapter, before I started my company, I was with the Boston Consulting Group and a special incubator inside of them called BCG Digital Ventures. And what I really liked about BCG was that it was a strong culture of intellectual, sorry, it was a strong culture of intellectual curiosity and really prided itself on this notion of what some call eminence and eminence not for the sake of stroking ego, but just sharing like what you're doing with others, other communities outside of your day-to-day reality. So, a lot of the BCG consultants that I you know observed would um, would always write or would always speak in parallel, in parallel with any client work that they were doing. And they could bring those inspirations back to BCG or they could share what BCG was doing to those communities. And it was like a cyclical flywheel that helped everyone. And so that's when the notion of like, ah, you know, we're setting up all these design capabilities in very unique ways in an environment that hadn't known the power of design. There's something to write about here. And, it, but it took a few years to kind of percolate, like what that thesis would be. And after, a, you know, a few, you know, knocks on the head by some mentors, clarity then ensued and I was able to begin that journey. Yeah.
0: One quick um, thing. Do you, is your window open? Oh, uh, no. Do you hear some? Oh, yeah. Going? I just hear just a little bit of the cars going by. I just wanted to make sure that the that the window I, was closed. I do look close to the street, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, all, it's all good. Okay. Um, so, you know, in thinking about design, and design is something that I'm uniquely interested in as well, particularly because I feel that it continues to provide the answers to many of the questions. That I'm asking, but how can we, you know, be reimagining design in our everyday lives? And like, what can design offer us? Like, what's the lens?
1: Hmm. I I think I I, I almost want to answer the question in terms of the continuum of time, um, because like, if we imagine ourselves in this present moment, like every every space, every environment, every situation, every object that we literally touch. Even the policies that we encounter in our day to day, um, they are the way they are by design. They were informed for right, wrong, or indifferent, better or worse. They were informed by somebody (laughs) or some set of people. Um, And we we can take that from the present moment that we're in, but we could also rewind and go back in history and attach historical relevance to any situation that we're in or any situation that we're studying and say, okay, what has happened in history? And how how did how did that design of things sort of manifest over time? And then I think also design brings us to the future because ultimately we're hopefully in the business of creating better answers, better scenarios for how we could steer ourselves to a more preferred reality or preferred future. And so I think design plays across that spectrum of time for me.
0: Yeah, I... I... I love design. I define it as the technology or the mechanism to bring thought into space Mm. and time. Mm. Um, And so design is that translation device, right? Because we are... Living and existing in embodied thought, right? The the T-shirt you're wearing, you know, the speaker behind you, the shelves, the headphones. These were once immaterial ideas, um, and so design is that process of bringing it, you know, into reality or or manifesting it. Um, but what are you know? In thinking about design, or I should say, design thinking, what are those? mechanisms uh you know the iteration the iterative process like what what is the methodology of the design process that that we could actually bring into our everyday life right because i think there are so many things outside of maybe building a shoe uh, many of those processes can be applied in multiple ways Mm
1: -hmm. yeah um i think it's a it's a serious question that you're asking that I think we need to have a lot more dialogue about. And I say that because like you mentioned design thinking, even though perhaps arguably it may, some may argue that it has helped the business community for the last couple of decades, like really understand like the needs of users and and the notion of human centricity. Of course, like we wanna make sure we're answering to real human needs out there. But I think there's still, just so much ambiguity around how do you actually apply the, the philosophies of design thinking, let alone the practice of design itself in conjunction with other disciplines and how we collaborate and how we see the future together. Uh, so, like, how do we actually cut through that glass ceiling of ambiguity and really make a strategic impact? Is, is sort of what I think we need to talk talk more about. Um, Let's and, talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I think a lot of the. Handbooks or frameworks around design thinking, for example, tend to be very oversimplistic. You know, we we talk about the double diamond. Um, we talk about what is the like, double diamond. So you know, from the UK Design Council, I think they were their first originators of it, where you basically describe the creative process as starting in a period of discovery, where you cast the net wide for a while, so you diverge in terms of finding those extreme people to talk to early adopters and laggers typically, and then you converge on an opportunity set that would inform the brief basically. And then you go through a period of divergence when it comes to ideation. So you cast the net wide and sketch all the different things you could do to answer that opportunity brief, and then converge on the solution that's worth investing in moving forward into product development. But reality is a lot more complicated than that. Typically it's chicken or the egg, like where do you even start? You might have to start making as a first step versus just naturally going into discovery motions. You might have to come up with an answer on the fly. You might have to fast track something. So a lot of the simple frameworks that are often characterized as design thinking, they, tip, they, they tend to fall down in the face of complexity, in the face of the reality. And so I instead try to view design as a myriad of these guideposts based on the best information that you have in the moment. Like how do you then navigate to the next pylon and the next pylon? But ideally, um, maybe to to finish the answer to your question, like it's sort of three areas for me that I tend to interchange and shuffle on the fly. It's like, how can we embrace a humble attitude toward discovery and not (laughs) not just designing for people that we claim to serve, but actually including them (laughs) with us and respecting them as a human being and just going like, hey, I have this problem that I'm working on. Can you help me? Like that should be the tact. Let's not call it research. Let's call it just learning. How do we learn together what the realities are, what the value criteria needs to be? And then, of course, let's diverge and cast the net wide and not just jump to one answer, but consider the multitude uh, until it's to a point where we need to exercise some discernment and converge on the thing that's worth investing in based on some criteria. So discovery, divergence, convergence, yes, but it's not this clean, linear, or cyclical process always. It's it's usually a lot more complicated than that.
0: Yeah, and what have, what have you felt um, have been some of the ramifications of this mm. kind of strict, rigid, design process right like somewhere in that process right you say it kind of falls in the face of complexity like who gets left out of the double diamond process what gets left out of the double diamond process
1: yeah no um, i think probably most importantly the folks that we claim to be serving usually in most businesses are left out of the initial conversations they're not even engaged respectfully or thoughtfully um, or with the right with the right level of you know empathy and compassion, they're not even evident as, as a part of the teams that are doing the work. You know we will will claim again to design for or even to design with the people that we're serving. But again, most teams don't include those people or representative people that have the trust of, of connection to those communities. Like that doesn't even exist in most cases, sadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, specifically you're talking about, you know, diversity and inclusion, right? The the people that, you know, that the design world does not reflect the world that it's designing for or purports Mm -hmm. to want to design for, Um, which I think is a really great place to talk about this journey of yours yeah. um you know you exist across a multitude of disciplines um starting off as a you know mechanical engineer that ended up at going to business school at like Nike Boston consulting group like <laughs> like like and then going back to design school after all of this. I mean like this is it's 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 the life of of dreams, really, right? Uh, one of kind of endless curiosity. But could you walk us back, like to the to this journey uh, of becoming? Like, how did how did this journey begin?
1: Oh, uh, I mean, I not to be cliche, but uh, if I go back to the days of youth, I I always had some creative volition, and I drew for hobby. And I really give credit to my you know parents for creating an environment where creativity could at least manifest based on what we knew then. Uh, so always encouraging me to continue drawing. Um, it's how I sort of interpreted the world, how I broke down what I would observe in the world. And they, they, they encouraged that. And my parents, if anything, um, based on maybe the public school education that my, my, uh, my siblings and I were exposed to, they were always like, carving out days off or the family vacations to go take us to the museums or art galleries just to fill our minds with imaginative stuff. So I really appreciate that from how I was raised. But when thinking about career, I didn't know how to channel that creativity into what you would call design or innovation. Those, those realms were thousands of miles away from my worldview. This was where I was raised in the better part of um, most of my childhood was in Detroit, uh, Michigan, sort of in the heart of the automotive industry. And most of the neighbors were engineers or business people. And going through the school systems, it was like engineering or business. Those are sort of the two paths that are going to assure you a job. (laughs) And and as much as my parents were sacrificing and, you know, not even having college being a guarantee trajectory, like it wasn't ever a guarantee that we would go. Um, But if we if we if the sacrifices did allow that to happen, then engineering was like sort of the first choice to say, you know what? drawing connected to my interest in math and science. Like that makes sense, even though I didn't necessarily know what engineering really meant until I got into it. So fast forward, um, I decided to study mechanical engineering for the, all those reasons, those, those confluence of interests. And um, while in undergrad as industries, you know, as industries visited campus to court us, uh, one industry in particular had hadn't hired young talent for the many decades prior. It was the nuclear power generation industry. And so I spent the next, I guess the first formal chapter of my career cutting my teeth on nuclear reactor mechanical systems and um, accident simulations and all the crazy work that uh, goes into the nuclear um, you know, reactor sort of understanding. And and um, I'm just so grateful for that experience because it gave me probably double the, the years of experience in the same amount of time then maybe what my peers were engaged in or exposed to in other industries. Um, fast forward, a natural curiosity for business sort of crept in to that engineering experience. And I didn't have any business courses from undergrad to really make sense of, but I, but I wanted to have maybe a bit more license in terms of where my path was going. And I wanted to connect the dots in terms of what were, what were some of the reasons around some of the project work and the commercial relationships. So just my curiosity for wanting to fill that gap Eventually led to uh, ways to like partner with business folks and learning from them across the aisle in the same company, and then eventually going to business school for it. So that's when I decided to study at Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon, uh, the Tupper School of Business, uh, was a very friendly place for engineers looking to add that business layer. So i was very thankful that the timing sort of worked there. And then uh, while in business school, you had two years to sort of take a step back and look at your career with fresh perspective. So I told myself, you know what? That creative edge from youth, I want to join a company that has that creative edge to it. Not knowing what that would mean for me, but I wanted to go in a different environment like that versus just going back to an engineering company with my MBA. So it's like, how do you lean into an unfamiliar sort of stretch versus playing to the comfort zone? And thankfully Nike was at the top of the list. They afforded me a path in. I started as a business planner, typical MBA job out of out of school, um, and that was great because I I got to have I had to really um, get up the learning curve rather fast, um, and understand that business acumen in the context of a publicly traded company like Nike, and helping to synthesize the financial and operational performance of certain business segments and roll that up to the C level executives that are sitting a floor above me. <laughs> And how they, uh, you know, related that information to Wall Street and back and forth with earnings release calls. That just helped solidify that knowledge in a good way. But I was a product person at heart from my engineering background and my creative curiosity. So I started networking and networking across the Nike environment. Um, one coffee chat led to two, two led to four. So the chain continued. And then I met a f- couple um, newfound creative friends and Jason Maiden Dwayne Edwards and Dwayne saw some of the raw creative work I was doing. And he gave me a shot to try my hand at sneaker design. And also at the same time, my day job had moved from business planning to more of an operational job within global footwear product engines. So now I'm seeing creativity all around me from newfound design friends. And then I have these side hustles brewing where I'm working on product and and learning by doing, learning the craft of Nike product creation in that respect.
0: I want to unpack this. St- Thank you for for sorry for the long winded. No, no i i I love to let people just ride, um, okay. but I want to unpack this a little bit um, because there's a there's a common thread uh, that weaves throughout this entire story, uh, and I think one that we can you know all learn from. One, you know, when you went to Notre Dame, um, you know, even for undergrad, and you mm-hmm it links even to this story that you told about Nike, this realization that there was a rigor Mm. that you (sighs) did not have that you had to ramp up for, right? Mm. Like even in your book, you speak about, you know, getting to Notre Dame and you not really being prepared Mm -hmm. uh, for that. So how did you overcome that? Like what was that process of doubling down to meet Mm. the need
1: You know, um, thank you for the question. I, when I reflect back, you're right. It was like hitting a brick wall. Like, okay, the bar is clearly (laughs) different than what I was used to. Um, but I, I think it went back to some of the values that were embodied in my household. Like, you know, we were a, you know, a humble family, but I, I think, I think my parents did a good job of teaching us how to dream to really say, you know, you, you got to have a dream for yourself of, of that featured version of who you want to be. And life isn't easy. Life is hard. And, you know, we heard stories all the time of what they had to go through and what the elders before them had to go through. So the, the, the fact that resistance would always sort of be present in our journey and the fact that there may be times where I'm going to feel ill-equipped or I, I don't have the knowledge, but, it, it's not about stopping there. It's about like, okay, how do I go get that knowledge? And even, you know, in the book, I talk about that, that first freshman advisor at Notre Dame where he sort of saw the initial midterm grades and the challenges and difficulties and said, you know what, I, I don't think engineering's for you. Why don't you just go into liberal arts or business or do something else? It's not for you. And again, like just kind of recentering and understanding like where I come from and what the family values were. Like that ran in contradiction. And it's like, well, wait a minute. At the first sign of difficulty you're telling me to give up. That doesn't compute. I'm interested in this space. I will figure it out. And that was what I told myself and also sought the right wisdom and you know input and mentorship to figure out the better way to study mm-hmm. to to elevate and meet the bar. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I love this um, you know, this notion because there there's some there's some kind of juicy details uh, that were that were left out. like one was you know, you choosing to take this uh, job at the nuclear plant with Westinghouse because you wanted to get to it. like you didn't want to wait, you know, ten years in the factory floor, you know, doing this kind of rote systematic way of, you know, engineering, right? Mechanical engineering. Like you wanted to hop to it. You wanted to like fast track it. And so you chose a career that allowed you to Mm -hmm. really hop in. And I think this idea, and it kind Mm -hmm. of, I think goes back to what you were mentioning earlier, even with the double diamond that it's in the doing Mm -hmm. that you learn, right? Like it's in the pushing forward, even if it's not always correct, if it's not always particularly right. But there also is this this inner voice, uh, you know, of curiosity, mm. that's that's guiding you, um, and that allows for the courage. I think to to make these pivots. How, how did you find that voice, and how do you know when it's time mm. to pivot? And I ask that knowing that, you know, so many of us, right, are you know doing what we always thought we were supposed to do, right? Like getting that good engineering job or, you know, doing, you know, maybe nursing or or teaching, but there's another voice that's kind of knocking. Um and and how do we how do we how do we find that voice and when do you know it's time to make that change?
1: Yeah, I I think I think it starts with dreaming when you're young. And trying a lot of things it's stroking the curiosity beginning as early as possible to just practice exercising on your curiosity, whether it's making a drawing or making a prototype or making a song, whatever, whatever the, whatever the experiment is, that's that you feel is intuitively right instinctually right. We have, we have to do it. And that's what I at least try to embody here for my son. Like I want him to try all kinds of things and eventually through evidence building, you start to say, "Oh, you know, I like this or I like that, and I want to double down in those couple areas." Right? I think I think the same is true. It continues to be true as adults um, because there have been there may have been like early notions, and maybe I didn't know how to articulate them as design or innovation. But I remember like that anecdote. I would maybe want to do that one day, or maybe this one day, and or in the face of resistance, where I'm curious about maybe a new area. Before I even know that I'm going to potentially jump into that area, I I, I may start to ask questions and then questioning and having conversations leads to actually making a more concerted experiment, whether it's a side hustle or my own experiment, my own prototype or investigation. I make something. And if it goes well and I have evidence, I can hold that up, Not, not only for others to see, but just for myself to understand, oh, I was able to do that. And it doesn't mean that I mastered anything. If anything, I'm just getting started. But at least the evidence points to some building of confidence and credibility that maybe there's something to this path. Maybe I should do it again and again and again. And even if you hack away at the tree, it doesn't mean that it's going to fall down in your direction still. You, you, that, that, that path of experimentation, in some ways, it, this has been true for me in that you, you're brought to a fork in the road. Where you then learn enough to know whether you need to commit to that path or not, or leave it be, because not every path is meant for us, right? But through the learning, you are gonna you're gonna arrive at those forks in the road. The forks in the road, and that's a grateful position to be in. If you didn't do anything at all, you never you never reach the fork in the road. You never you never get anywhere. But once you're at that fork in the road, um, you have to make a guttural commitment sometimes and really double down. And for me, I think the biggest fork in the road occurred when I was at Nike. I was already in most, in many people's eyes, I was already in the dream job that a lot of people would love to see themselves in. And 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 I'm saying this with a healthy amount of privilege that I even got to be there in that environment. But as I was doing these side hustles, designing shoes on the side, holding up evidence, the big fork in the road was like, I could either continue to claw and scratch another 10 years before I was fully credentialed in Nike's eyes as an established footwear designer. Or I could go invest in my creative foundation in a different way. And I'm also looking at the world outside of Nike, how the world was rapidly converging. These notions of multidisciplinary cohesions were happening. We were seeing the rise of Apple and their different ecosystems designed on the cover of business magazines. like. I was feeling this in the marketplace, looking outside of Nike's walls all the time, every day, getting inspired by what I was seeing. And I said, do I just want to be a footwear designer? And no disrespect to footwear design. I mean, that's a lot, that's a, a plotted profession in its own right. But I, I, was, I realized, watching the world unfold, that I really wanted to position myself for a career in innovation. Leveraging design, leveraging my technical engineering sensibilities, leveraging my business sensibilities together. But I needed to go and really invest in my creative foundation. And I could do that through a couple more years of grad school. Which is crazy, because I was already in the dream job. I was married, my, my son wasn't even one years old at the time, and I'm talking about quitting my Nike job to go back to school. <laughs>
0: so. How did you convince your wife of
1: that? <laughs> Well, what helped to your earlier question is that there was a trail of evidence. I was getting these mm, wins work. And in the face of, you know, for every experiment, believe me, there were 99 voices saying it wasn't for me. They didn't see me doing that, but I still did it. And I held up shoes that made it into market and did really, did really well in the market. Um, I was able to contribute concertedly to innovation initiatives and have people really respect my contributions as an individual contributor that showed design potential. Still, a lot of voices, ah, we don't see it. I'm holding up evidence. And it's like, I gotta do this for me. I can't just allow my career to rest on someone else's shoulders. I couldn't just leave my career to Nike and and what they wanted to do subjectively or objectively with me. I I needed to control my destiny. So my wife and son sort of, I think, saw all that fruit and they, they knew this was leading to somewhere. And they, you know, I think through their belief in me, a healthy dose of faith across us as a family, we were able to decide together and, and go for it.
0: Mm, I, I, I love that. And I think it's something I, I talk uh, a lot about, um, or, or that I should just say that I'm constantly um, tapping on, which is the role of desire. Mm. Um, and desire as almost an innate intelligence, um, mm. that we should really lean into more. Um, because I think what you're speaking about, as far as like exploring one's curiosity, is it's it's it just really comes down to play, right? Mm. Like, kind of just play, just trying things out, um, and being a multidisciplinary artist myself, right? I, I even as you speak, I didn't really think about all of the things that I just played with, right? Mm. Just in my in my bedroom on GarageBand, composing songs that nobody would hear except my mother, like <laughs> you know, just just trying stuff out, which is like kind of insane. But but it breeds, right? You start to make these other connections, you know, across mm-hmm. platforms. But then also this this kind of history of refusal. Mm-hmm. That you've had to like listen to other people's opinion mm-hmm. of what they thought you should be doing, which I find you know incredibly admirable. But also, like you mentioned, that you know you can be chopping at the tree, but it doesn't always fall in your favor. What was what was one thing you chopped at that did not fall in your favor, and you're like, oh, uh, maybe uh, maybe mm-hmm. I shouldn't uh, go down this path. Um, you know,
1: I, I think I had a lot of those moments when I was still kind of wrestling with like what my business education at an MBA level, like what my business education was going to truly mean for me, because, it, you know, there were times where I I definitely found my my own voice was hard to hear in the midst of many voices, because whether it was navigating business school or in my you know first business planning job where my peers were former investment bankers or, or for former, you know, master's level accountants and, you know, corporate Titans of finance, like these were my peers around me and I had to come up to speed and, 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 and really like match the bar of what they were setting in the work. Um, but, you know, when you have conversations among those circles, it's like, Oh, you know, for, for influence, you need to do these things for your next steps. Or if you really if you really want to build you know wealth and albeit generational wealth which d- definitely wasn't something that I you know I come from um, you know th- those those are attractive potential paths to consider and like, should I like leave Nike to go join an investment bank and you know do the thing and and I, you know I experimented with conversations um, even had interviews with potential you know players that could afford me a path in those directions. And I think, I think when you got across the table and looked each other in the eye, they could tell I was unsure. I didn't have an, I didn't, I didn't have enough evidence amassed to justify like that was the right direction. And, and upon some of the probes and provocations, like I didn't have good answers to like why I should be doing that, you know, or, or, you know, someone in those conversations would level with me. Like, are you sure you want to do this? Because this is what it means. Like, I remember a, a recruiter was like for one of the big banks was like, "Your life is going to be hell," <laughs> uh, and and do you want to do you want to put yourself and your your spouse, your future kids through this life? Because unless you like the chase and and the game of how to make money in this world, I'm not sure it's going to be for you. So you better be sure before we take any further next steps. So like those moments have been kind of cathartic and even even as difficult as they are to realize uh you know i'm, I'm in a wrong sort of mode here and i'm, I'm here i'm hearing a hard truth but I, I i did need to hear that truth because i might have messed my life up doing the wrong thing or chasing the wrong stepping stone
0: yeah i love that i love that question are you sure you want to do this <laughs> Are you sure you want to do this? Like, are you willing to do what it takes in order to achieve this? And that's a really great question. And I think it, it really um, ties into your work at Nike. Um, because, you know, you enter that organization through the lens of business. But you mentioned that you were doing these projects on the side. Um, something in your book that you called uh, Stretch Assignment. Mm -hmm. um what is a stretch assignment number one and then two how how did they assist you in your path to becoming right so you you have this kind of mainstream job that you're doing and then on the side for free (laughs) (laughs) you're doing these other things right yeah
1: and and i have to add an important caveat like i'm definitely not a proponent of having people feel like they have to go do these extra things to to get ahead, to be perceived as like credible in their profession, because a lot of people can find that they're being exploited if they do that. So any stretch assignment that I took on was actually my choice to do that for the sake of like wanting to learn and experiment around an area or potential path that I could maybe step into one day. So Like I wanted to, you know, learn as much as I could about how design worked and how design could connect to the things that I had done prior from my engineering and business background. Um, And to the earlier point around like, are you sure you want to do this? I got that same provocation when I was doing those, those, those those stretch assignments, Um, you know, from the Jasons and from the Duanes of the world, where it's like, I'll give you a shot, but are you sure? Because it's going to be hard work and, With the bar is really high. I'm going to hold you to it. I'm going to hold you accountable. But leaning into that and trying it every day, I loved it. I wanted to do even more. I wanted to learn. I wanted to do what what it took and even then some. And, you know, working with Dwayne, for example, he gave me my first footwear design brief, but we would meet each other in the morning at like six in the morning before, you know, (laughs) sunrise in most cases in Portland. And, uh, you know, we would commiserate around like 8:39 o'clock we would both do our day jobs he had a t- big team to manage i would go do my job and then at night i would work on his assignment till the wee hours and then show up the next morning at 6 so over the course of a year like that's what it took and we got two shoes out on market with my design credit under his mentorship and you know he invited me to all the jordan brand like product reviews and nervously sliding the sketches across the table like so feeling you know, nervous intimidation, sweating bullets in terms of like the, what the Jordan brand product team would think of my sketches, you know, like, like that was very scary. But the fact that they gave me constructive feedback, the sketches were good enough to hold, you know, hold water. And I could come back the next week with better iterations. And I was feeling the love of that team and they were, they were nurturing me and they were encouraging me forward while also being honest with me and holding me accountable to the standards. So, um, That's how stretch assignments sort of played because they they provided a trail of evidence.
0: Mm Hmm. Mm Hmm. Yeah, I bring it up because I I think it's I think it's so important to to just really understand that sometimes the passion is is even outside of like your quote unquote day job, right? Like, what is it? What it takes in order to become that? Mm -hmm. This is. It, it's work, right? obviously, these things take work, um, you know, but finding the love in it, and there's something that um, I think we haven't really spoken about yet was the role that particularly black individuals have played in this journey, um, mm-hmm. you know, one um, in you even going to business school, right that there was a consortium um of a group of schools that were particularly looking for, you know, black and brown individuals. And so that is actually what allowed you to, I mean, obviously there was talent, but that, that, you know, that, that provided that pathway, right. Mm -hmm. To make it uh, that you could go to Carnegie Mellon. And then even like, you know, your mentor, Jason Maiden, right. These are people in places that you want to be Mm -hmm. that look like you. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so how important is representation in these spaces and particularly in the space of design?
1: Ooh. Um, yeah, all kinds of thoughts come to mind. Um, you know, the first I'll say, you know, representation absolutely matters. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of it almost like every, every week. Someone will come out of the ether and say, you know what, I saw you. You gave a talk, or you did this, and it changed me. Or you know, I saw myself in what you had to say, and and so I don't. I think we often underestimate the importance of like how much that matters, and and some of the spaces that I again had the privilege of navigating, because not many don't just even get access through the front door, but through those spaces to see a Jason, to see a Dwayne, um, where they were they were very like one of very few in these massive organizations and that the fact that they saw me beyond just a 10 minute coffee conversation to say, you know what, I want to create a little bit more room for Kevin to hear his story a little bit more, understand who he is beyond just the title and maybe structure a runway that makes sense for Kevin to learn. or maybe I, I can learn something from Kevin and, you know, we can we can start a relationship that way. That absolutely matters. And I probably didn't see the bigger imperative at the time because I'm just trying to survive I'm trying to claw and scratch and, and learn and grow as a prof- early you know professional on my journey. but the bigger imperative it didn't come till later in my career where when I was in the the, the hot seat to build teams to stand up capabilities and realize that the organizations that I was a part of like we didn't have all the answers and we're claiming to serve this hyperconnected mosaic of society. But I'm look, looking around and most of the employees, at least at that early outset, had come from very pedigreed paths of privilege and didn't reflect that mosaic, the demographic of broader society. And we we're trying to stand up things where we didn't have all the answers. So we needed to lean into communities to find inspirations and understand like how to be better. So it, it, you know, our survival in those days of standing up those capabilities our survival was heavily dependent on our ability to find people that were different from us that would really push us to be better, to give us more answers, to give us more pattern recognition, more insight. And after doing that over a number of years, you look back and I realized this is the most diverse place I've ever worked for because of who we found. Mm. We we scoured the earth for the right people that would Mm. push us to be better.
0: Mm. That's actually one thing that I... You know, even when we first met um, at MIT, mm-hmm. one thing that I just really admired was your your candidness about what it has been like, right? Like your journey of navigating you know these various spaces as a as a black individual um, and as a black man in particular. and even um in your book, it, I think it's like page four, oh. you say like my very existence was a threat. Mm.
1: yeah. There were, could you, there were a lot
0: of, oh sorry could you unpack that yeah no go for it
1: no you know again the privilege of being able to even write a book it was sort of a forced cathartic exercise to have to unpack and when the book started I thought oh it's going to be a you know it's going to be a bunch of <laughs> design business frameworks <laughs> under the realm of design thinking or you know design integration with business it could have easily been that type of book but I think I think around the time of the writing process was the very start of the pandemic. We were approaching the summer, that was George Floyd. A bunch of compounding pandemics on top of each other as we were all wrestling with 2020 and beyond. I couldn't help but connect a lot of the overt stuff that we were feeling and experiencing with remembering what that resistance felt like. Now, I will say that constructive critique on anything I was working on, I'll take that all day. Whether as an engineer, or business person, designer, I love cr- constructive critique because it's like you're helping we're helping each other understand what the bar is and how we need to hit it or exceed it. Fine. But as I was unpacking through writing, a lot of the resistance I I didn't have an answer for like why where where was it coming? Where was it coming from? why, why am I feeling, you know, for every one voice that's letting me do something, I, I have 99 voices telling me that it's not for me. And without any constructive, concrete guidance in terms of why that is. No concrete feedback to go with that assertion. And, you know, having to lean in and say, well, why not me? There's a desire to your earlier point. There's a desire that's propelling me forward. And I'm showing evidence. Like, why not me? And that voice gets stronger. Why not? Why not you, Kevin? Keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, And then to realize, like, when you look out beyond yourself and see that the world has all these latent unmet needs still waiting to be solved, and and those needs aren't being solved by the people that are professing to guide the ivory towers of design. So so what what are we doing about that? How do we change our team dynamic and the makeup of our teams to make sure that we're relevant to serve those people?
0: So yeah, um, you know. A, a slight pivot. You, you know, you exist across, you know, these multiple t- fields, which I think in contemporary culture, uh, maybe someone would call a generalist, which I don't think is really accurate. Um, but it, but you exist in these different realms of, you know, technology, you know, design, uh, innovation, and and even business. Um, but that isn't, wasn't always met with like open arms, right? Like, you know, what are some of the challenges actually uh, of being multidisciplinary?
1: You know, most organizations, especially the bigger that they get, um, I think industrial revolutions have shown us that most forms of global enterprise, the bigger they get, they tend to over-specialize their people. And all of a sudden you have departments, you have, you know, very like specialized titles. Like I've been at some organizations where the person's business card, the title on it was so long. It took like three lines to fill. And it's like, I, I, I couldn't tell like my friend outside of work, like what you do because your title is so complicated <laughs> and, and realizing also that the, the amount of time that we got to spend collaborating with different disciplines, people from different departments was always the, the exception, never the rule. And any volition to connect the dots, even if it was fo- well-founded by looking outside the company walls and seeing like a gross unmet need that we're not answering to, when you start speaking up, being told that ah, that's not your job, that's XYZ's or apartment's charter. If you, if you keep going there, it's going to look weird that you're stepping on their sort of turf and that's not a good look for us. That's, that's been a typical feedback in my experience in large organizations. Um only recently, you know, the last handful of, you know, 10, 15 years, I've been in spaces where, you know, we had to lean into each other and figure out how to make the cross-disciplinary collaboration more the norm and not the exception.
0: Yeah. And then what opportunities does it allow for, right? Like on, on one level, right, you know, you're trying to somehow explain yourself to this external force who can only put one, you know, in these narrow categories, but... Ultimately, it offers a wealth of opportunities. And so what does a multidisciplinary mm. approach, even just to life, offer?
1: You know, I think, I think we can congeal an integrated vision much faster. Like even as an individual, like yourself, you explain you these different multidisciplinary sensibilities. Your ability to conceive of a, of a really good holistic idea can come much faster than if you just did one thing your whole life. And I found that to be the case in my career. Like we can get to a vision much fast, faster, and we can also like rally the sensibilities to just begin prototyping against that vision like immediately versus waiting for some other actor to enter the, the problem solving and take the idea and, and run with it. And with every one of those handoffs that we were sort of subjected to prior, there's so much waste, there's so much loss in translation, there's so much inefficiency that organizations cannot allow that risk to continue to manifest, otherwise they're gonna become irrelevant. So, you know, um, as, a, as a multidisciplinary hybrid, it hasn't been easy. You know, you often don't map to a, a success profile because most of them are written by the rules of a singular sort of thread of perspective. But the hybridity is absolutely what the future requires. Speed, and I, and I say that meaning by, because speed is a two-sided coin speed i say speed because again we can get to that vision much faster and also inform the short-term things that we do and build and execute to steer ourselves toward that vision pivoting as necessary as we learn that that doesn't necessarily happen so well if we're in a prior modality where it's all about handoffs waiting for someone singular to do something and we hand off something to the next person whether it's the business people thinking of the great big idea, handing that over to a design firm or design department, and then the design department hands off to a software division to execute the prototype. It might be a couple of years before we see anything worth testing in market. Whereas if you allow the disciplines to blur and celebrate hybridity, that team might be able to get in market to test something within six months. So speed and the opportunity cost associated with it is very significant. To to not do that is now sort of sort of like foolhardy, but the other side of the other side of speed though is the negative around. It can also be a, an implied authority. The faster the world gets things to digital, and sometimes speed can be an authority where you don't raise your hand and question like some of the assumptions that are at play or some of the hypotheses, or like why we need to team with the people that we claim to serve, mm-hmm. like those things. Mm-hmm could be harmful if we allow speed to become too much of an authority.
0: Mm, mm. You know, you said something um, when you spoke about, you know, you know <laughs> these people working in professions with titles that are three lines long. <laughs> and, you know, I think about one, the, the systems at play, right? The, the ways in which our institutions reflect cultural values um and for me that is also design right and it's it's actually even if we talk about even english right like the english language for me is a design framework right it is a mechanism to translate you know or speak to your reality and like any other design tool it allows for or disallows for certain things and so like the lexicon and the the um and the syntax of english is one that is about categorization Mm. Right. It is about naming the specific thing. It's about a collection. It's also about conquering. Right. It's it's mm. actually coded in the language and the ways in which the institution itself reflects that, which is why, you know, the British and even English, right, is even now the language mm. of business. Right. Because it is the tool that best does the thing. Um, But like any tool, like it disallows for certain things and just like any um, one point of view disallows for certain things or we sit within the blind spots, Hmm. right, of that point of view. And so, you know, navigating this world, what do you think the black experience offers the world of design? Wow, that's a big
1: question, an important question. When we think about again, if I if I attach historical relevance to this and also connect that to our present moment and our projections toward the future, you know, our and I speak I speak whole like purposely and grossly holistically in terms of like the black community at large across the, the globe, right? Um but when I think about the impact on culture, on the arts, on ingenuity, on science that our Black community has had in this world over the course of history, the many genres of civilization. And then when we look at the the composition of the Black community today, where, you know, depending on the the major city and the world that you find yourself in, we could could populate as much as 50 to 70% of that city, you know, in some cases. And in North America, you know, perhaps, it averages out to maybe 13% black. But again, when I look at a lot of the organizations that claim to serve society, you know, they they might have a couple percent black representation within their walls. And then as you go up the ladder, it, it becomes a very abysmal re- level of representation that's just appalling considering the society they claim to serve and the makeup of the organization does not mirror the, the world. and. And, you know, we don't, most global enterprises, most industries still don't give appropriate credit to the role, the level of influence that the black community has had in shaping, you know, what happens, the, the, the best of what happens in our society. We don't get credit for that. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of exploitation and extraction where, where others get to benefit off the back of the culture. And I'd love to see that stop. And the design community has a very important role in this in that if you believe that design sets the precedent and creates the future in terms of the things that we bring into the world, we fail society if our teams don't have the, the same level of black representation within the best studios of the world. We fail.
0: Yeah, do you, you know, in, in your book, you talk about the Bauhaus, which is, uh, is a favorite of mine as well. <laughs> do you, do you believe that art institutions are the best road to broadening uh, the diverse scope within the world of design? Meaning, is going to MIT the best route? Anymore, right? Are, are 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 these are our storied institutions mm. capable? And the best way for Black and Brown individuals to enter this space, um,
1: I I think they they can if they should choose. <laughs> I, I choose my words very carefully. I think they can remain a viable path. But even for them to remain viable, a lot has to change. And I'm speaking to MIT, my alma maters of Art Center, College of Design, Carnegie Mellon, Notre Dame. Like, I lump all of them. Institutions as we know them and the, the, the gates and the pedagogies and the, the prestige that comes with those worlds. Those worlds need to open their aperture and embrace other schools of thought. I think those same, those same spheres also need to open up their offerings beyond just the acute, heavy investment of a degreed education, where it's like in someone's life, there's a huge spike for undergrad. And unfortunately, you know, students are taking on ungodly levels of loans just to make it to that diploma. And maybe if they're lucky, you know, a few years into their career, they go to grad school or if they decide to pursue a PhD, these big spikes. But but what's happening in between that life, that, you know, year in a life, life-in-a-life journey of what is hopefully lifelong learning, the institutions aren't satiating those needs across the spectrum, across the continuum. And they're not pulling from lived personal and professional experiences from a diversity of people that could inform their spaces. It can't just sit with tenured faculty that are like the 0.1% of the 1% of the 1% Again, it doesn't match the world. So we have have myopic, you know, we have a myopic engine that's feeding the pedagogy of design. Meanwhile, at the same time, we have a lot of new disruptive offerings that are giving people a leg into design that we need to further celebrate. And it may not lead to a degree. Maybe it's a certification. Maybe it's, I mean, there's tons of young people learning from each other on TikTok, as well as watching YouTube. My son can learn a new software in a matter of days that it would take me weeks to learn just the speed of like what people can get access to. If we believe in the power of the internet, global connectivity, there's no reason we can't pull inspiration and education from many different places to inform what is hopefully more inclusive pedagogies moving forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and I, and I ask in, in a, in, from a place of, you know, inquisitiveness, but also a place of of also seeing a blind spot, right? Um, of you know, you know. I mean, I'm here at an institution right now, right? Like I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, a quarter mile from Harvard, and just unsure, just unsure if these institutions, which are couched in the culture of capital colonial extraction right because even if they can offer the education right it comes at the cost right it comes at the, there's this other trade-off that one has to make in order to gain access and so how can one reimagine mm. the possibilities for this that exist outside of this existing system so i'm really asking from you know some some anarchist uh, <laughs> You know, just some anarchist, you know, (laughs) inquiry. Um, So uh, I have just a a couple of other questions. Um, One particularly around mentors, because I just wanted to double tap on this because I think so much of, you know, my, my trajectory, yours as well, has been In one, being able to see people who look like you, finding people who can actually see you, right, can even see you past, you know, your resume, you know, or your title, you know, but for you, how do you go about choosing a mentor and developing those relationships? It's a question I get a lot. Hmm.
1: You know, I'm sure all kinds of people have different experiences relating to this topic, but I've... I've never perhaps benefited when like a company tries to create a formal mentorship program and they match me with someone where it's like, Oh, you know, we have the awkward, you know, first walk to the cafeteria together. (laughs) You're supposed to be my mentor. And again, you know, but I, I found that just the act of interrupting your day, your, 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 your daily reality, just to say, you know what, can I, can can we just go for a conversation? Because I'm curious about what you do. And I'm I'm you know, encountering these dilemmas. It, it could just start there. We don't call it mentorship. It's just like I'm asking the question. I'm trying to create a little bit of space to have a conversation outside of my reality to learn. And if and if I feel like there's mutual resonance and we're leaning into each other in that conversation, then and and that warrants another data point, another chance for coffee another conversation if that leads to perhaps another conversation where there's uh, vulnerability and the walls come down and we get we get to sharing some difficult stuff or maybe like how I'm emotionally feeling if I'm approaching this career hurdle and I'm feeling resistance or i'm understanding I'm, I'm not understanding what my place might be in the situation that I'm in that vulnerability and people lean in further and we we get somewhere and there's solutions and that person perhaps wants to play a role that transcends mentorship into what I would call sponsorship where they're, they're they're willing to risk their own neck to vouch for myself or someone else that's not in the room that they're in. Um, You know, those mentors that have shown themselves over time continue to be my mentors for life. Mm. Yeah. They got, they got me, they got me, I got them. You know, it's like, whatever, we're family at that point.
0: I love that. Thank you for explaining that process. You know, there is that moment when, when the humanity comes in. You yes. know, that's such a big pivot point. And I think sometimes we don't think about um, the role of time, right? Because some things can't be rushed and connection is mm-hmm. one of them. And, you know, even in my life, right, as an actor, you know, previously an actor, sometimes you want the thing, right? You're like, I, I emailed the person and I want, you know, the relationship or I want the gig or I want the thing. And sometimes it's something that comes five years down the line, mm-hmm. you know, it's the consistency, it's the continual showing up. And I think we sometimes in the speed of things, forget about how important time is. You know, some things, you know, just can't be rushed. Um, Totally agree. But to, you know, you're... I mean, I'm a little... I was a little tired reading your book uh, because... (laughs) I was like, should, do I even have the time to be sitting here reading this? Like, I need to be like working on a stretch project or something like that. Um, but I want to kind of just, just, just pivot to like, how, like what fuels you. But, but I want to start with this quote from your book. Um, so for for individuals listening, this is reimagining design, unlocking strategic innovation, page thirty three, second paragraph. Halfway down. Uh, it says, this path was not easy. The jumps across silos are extremely difficult, yet very insightful to propel me forward. This path is not easy. Mm. What, is your, what is your morning routine like?
1: So I typically wake up at six, head downstairs. Usually the house is still fast asleep and i I say a little prayer um just thanking god for waking up um and i put on my running shoes my headphones and i go you know bust out a couple miles around my neighborhood uh i'll come back walk the dog and then i'll do some more like circuit type stuff sit-ups push-ups light weights just to get the body invigorated then I just go help my wife in, you know getting the house up and running for the day and getting our son off to school, um, make my coffee, and then come to my home studio here. And get and, to work. And,
0: and what happens if you don't get that in?
1: Ooh, yeah, my day's off. I, I, I don't feel like myself. It's like, as much as I will feel it if I miss a cup of coffee. <laughs> if I don't get that endorphin rush, you know, and a and good sweat, I, I don't feel like myself.
0: How did how did you just, dis- how did you come to this morning routine? how did you discover this for yourself? Like, how did you discover what works for you? What gets you going?
1: Uh, you know, I've, I've been running like distance running ever since I was, you know, um, in high school, I was a skin, skinny kid. So the, the track team looked at me and said, you're coming with us cause you're skinny and you could, we, we think you could run far and fast, you know? <laughs> so I've been running my whole life. Um, and I, and I know what it felt like to not run at certain times where maybe the, the stress of the job or whatever, I was, you know, gaining weight, um, not feeling like, or just not dealing with stress well, but I, that I would remember how much running would always center me and I would get, get myself back in shape to, remain true to that of what worked for me.
0: Mm, mm. And, and you, you mentioned a little prayer to God. What's, what's, do you have a, what's your spiritual practice?
1: I, you know, I, um, I'm an imperfect man of faith. I'll just say that I I don't view myself as, you know, piously religious, (laughs) but I just try to talk to God and just thank him for, uh, all that I have. Ask for his forgiveness for my missteps Ask for uh, his grace because, you know, it's like there's no good work that I could ever do to, you know, validate myself as someone with a hail over its head. You know, there's there's no good work. I could not do enough good works to be perfect. But I just I'm thankful for the grace that he bestows despite my imperfections, despite my faults and falling short of the glory every day. But like asking for his help to propel me to try to be a better human being each and every day, and even the days that I fail, like the next day I get another chance when I wake up. So just being always thankful for that. that's sort of just the, the short prayer and conversation that I have in the morning.
0: Mm. It, it makes me it, What role does grace have in design?
1: Um, I think grace gives us the ability to the ability to still move forward without number one, accepting the status quo as just the, the rigid truth that we must adhere to. Right. And I think the other side of that is like how we view ourselves in that journey of creation You know, it's like because, believe me, there's many I'm sure we all feel it at different times. Like there's imposter syndrome, there's self-doubt, you know, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't suffer from self-doubt in some way each and every day of my profession, of my work. You know, it's just those voices come in your head. Right. "Ah, Not sure I can do that. Not, Not sure I can get this over the line. But but. I'm thankful for other voices that say, well, why not you? Despite your imperfections, despite maybe the inadequacy that you might be feeling in the moment, if you just get going, you will find the evidence to make you adequate, <laughs> and then
0: some. So
1: get, get your butt moving.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you got, you got it moving to creating your own firm. You know, uh, dreams, design, and life. Yes, sir. What, what prompted this?
1: <laughs> you'll laugh, but I was using uh, "dreams, design and life as a hashtag in social media before I had the gall to <laughs> try to create my own company. Uh, but, but I think based on the path where, like you said, like you quoted, it wasn't easy. There were 99 resistors for every one advocate, but curiosity and dreaming were part of my whole entire life. You know, those were the, that was the rocket fuel to imagine what I could do despite inadequacy, despite the perils of the status quo. Uh, like just imagining that through dreaming, we could create a better future. So like we could, we should never stop dreaming. So dreaming stuck with me at the same time. We have to be part realist too. We have to be pragmatic and understand that there's the realities of life, the concretes, the resistance, that the, the, twists and turns of life so those concrete realities let's be let's be uh rational and and appreciate that they, they exist that those forces exist and how do you navigate around them or over them or under them and then you said it earlier uh that design is a medium to comprehend time and space of what we could create right uh so design is that medium that connects the two the dreaming with an appreciation of the immediate circumstances that we're navigating to still move forward, to still propel ourselves and create something of value,
0: Mm. dreams, design, and life. Mm. Unlocking human potential. Amen. (laughs) Um, Well, that is a beautiful, beautiful place to wrap. Um, Before I ask my last question, Kevin, first of all, I just wanted to thank you for just taking time out of your busy schedule to have this conversation with me, um it was absolutely incredible, but I also wanted to acknowledge your tenacity um and just sheer force of will to push past um so many naysayers whether or not whether or not you knew why they were neighing <sighs> or not, you know um and being quiet enough to listen to that desire, right? That, that inner thread that was kind of pulling you forward um, through different professions, through places that didn't make any kind of sense to anyone and maybe even yourself at times. And like you still said yes, right? You still iterated. You still just took one step forward towards it. And I'm excited actually to see what this next chapter holds. And so I just wanted to thank you and acknowledge that incredible work because, you know, you have no idea what it meant to be sitting in a class at MIT and to see you walk through the door, right? And there's so many people that um, will be inspired, have been inspired, and will continue to be inspired by the work that you do because you continue to go for your run in the morning <laughs> and show up. So, so thank you. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for the honor. It was such a pleasure to meet you in person, and then um, just your investment in the book means the world. And uh, to have me on the on the show, um, it speaks volumes in terms of who you are, and the the insights I gleaned from you in this conversation were were equally inspiring. So, thank you.
0: Ah, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, uh, Kevin, um, with everything at your behest, what is the world that you imagine for the future?
1: The world that I imagine, ideally, is one where we're, we've are we broken out of this unfortunate paradigm of marketers marketing, consumers consuming, and unfortunately, based on the power of computation, continuing to speed up that flywheel of behavior. I I, I pray and, and want to create a future that um, I pray for and want to create a future that allows us to show up for each other in the ways that are most human, respectful, and responsible. And there's so many lessons and learnings that we can pull from each other across the beautiful mosaic that is the world that are not owned by like one pedagogy or one institution. The more we can figure out how to free up wisdom collectively and share it and figure out how to break out of these unfortunate flywheels of consumption and negative business precedent. If we show up for each other in the most meaningful way, the business will take care of itself. So we have to trust and have faith that we can show up for each other and figure out ways to show up, figure out ways to unlock human potential, how to foster human connection, how to connect generational wisdom where we're not being ageist and we're not placating to weird fads and behavior because it's the hot topic of the moment. Like, let's figure out how to show up for each other.
0: Mm. Amen. Well, I want to see that world as well. My brother, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, Dario. Let me tell you, Kevin is the real deal. He exemplifies that leading with an open heart is the pathway to excellence. Share some of your thoughts with us over on Instagram and Twitter, at Black Imagination, and make sure you check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can now watch this and other episodes over on our new YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. The phrase, curiosity killed the cat, must have been written by someone determined to keep you in your place. Stay curious and keep Thank yeah. you.